Chicago Public Schools will require masks this fall. And in a special conversation, Cranes reporter Danny Ecker talks with Morningstar Executive Chairman Joe Mansueto about his path from CEO to his involvement in multiple projects, including his investment in the Chicago Fire. You know, I found out a sports team is really a three-legged stool. You know, there's the sporting side. I knew about that. Uh, the whole business side, you've got to monetize, you know, your on-field experience. The side I didn't really have an appreciation for was uh, the third leg of the stool is the civic side and just how deeply a sports team connects with the city. I'm Amy Guth, and this is Crane's Daily Gist for Monday, July 26th. When it comes to a professional like your doctor or lawyer, you want someone who knows you well. Wintrust believes you should have the same relationship with your banker, someone you can call directly and know they'll understand your concerns. Thousands of local business owners called their Wintrust banker when they needed Paycheck Protection Program loans. They called, Wintrust answered, and helped more than 11,000 local businesses secure funding. Learn more at Wintrust.com slash Daily Gist. Member FDIC. In a rare and candid conversation with Cranes reporter Danny Ecker, Joe Mansueto talks about his transition from his role as Morningstar CEO to a portfolio of endeavors, including his passion for soccer and his investment in the Chicago Fire. It's been a busy couple of years, almost a couple of years of ownership for you in terms of moving the team downtown. I mean, what's, I mean, and getting the things with the logo, the brand, the just really trying to relaunch this brand in the city in a lot of ways. What have you learned so far that stands out to you about the fire and about owning a sports team that's been interesting? I really enjoy it. <laughs> you know, when I bought into the team, I thought I would spend about, uh, you know, this much time on the team. Uh, and I end up spending this much. And now I'm gesturing to a much higher level for those who can't see my hands. Uh, so I'm ending up spending a lot more time on the team than I envisioned, but only because I like it. We've got a great team at the fire. I don't have to do it. Uh, but I've really enjoyed it. Um, I think the other surprise was, uh, you know, I found out a sports team is really a three-legged stool. You know, there's the sporting side. I knew about that. You've got to have a, you know, style of play strategy, players, um, the whole sporting side. You know, that was apparent to me. Uh, the whole business side, you've got to monetize, you know, your on-field experience. Um, and so a P&L and I knew about that. The side I didn't really have an appreciation for was uh, the third leg of the stool is the civic side and just how deeply a sports team connects with the city and how passionate fans are uh, about a sports club. Uh, you know, they tattoo the, the crest of the club onto their bodies. Uh, you know, they eat, live, and breathe the club and just care so much about it and uh, so just connecting in a deep way with the community. And I think that part is really satisfying, and I didn't have a full appreciation for that when I bought into the club. You, I mean, when we talked a couple years ago, you are talking about, you know, you, there was a really bright future you saw for Major League Soccer overall, right? And, and then, you know, you, it was not the most pleasant greeting, I guess, when you end up, I mean, all the work that you guys were doing to make this big homecoming at Soldier Field. How, how frustrating was that as you guys, as the season was about to start and then this hits, what was that experience like for you? I mean, did you kind of think, oh my gosh, you know, what did I get myself into here? And we just spent all these months and all these resources 
building up to this moment and then nothing. Obviously, it was a huge surprise. And I think all of our heads were spinning back, you know, in mid-March when people realized that, uh, you know, the world is shutting down due to COVID and kind of getting your mind around that and what it meant for people's health, uh, the city, your family. Uh, and yeah, it was certainly disappointing from the fire's perspective. We put a lot of effort into our um, debut at Soldier Field. We were looking at a sellout uh, at Soldier Field. And then uh, that was on a Saturday. And then on Wednesday, Thursday morning, uh, prior to the, that, that Saturday, uh, Pritzker, Governor Pritzker calls me up and says, hey, I know you've got this big game at Soldier Field. I'm going to ask you to you know, postpone that. And, uh, you know, I said, absolutely, Governor, you know, it's, you know, it's, it's the right thing to do. There's a lot of uncertainty. And so, you know, I don't think anybody at the fire had any, any desire to move on with it, you know, given the situation in the world. Um, and we knew it would just be delayed. We'd have our homecoming at some point. Um, it was quite the shocking event uh, in, in mid-March when we had to pull back on that. Um, there was so much momentum. And I don't know, when you have so much momentum in an organization, and all of a sudden you have to kind of slam the brakes on, you know, it's, you know, you get a bit of a whiplash and uh, it takes a while, a while for people to process everything. But again, there was so much going on in the world. I think, again, this was a minor thing uh, in the grand scheme of things. Has the pandemic changed your view of, of the MLS and the future of the fire and the team in any way? No, not at all. You know, it has not diminished my enthusiasm for the league as a whole, MLS, its prospects. Uh, nor for the fire. Uh, I think it's just delayed things, you know, maybe a, a year or two. Uh, but for me, this is a long run, you know, a project for the long run. I don't really view this as an investment, you know, something that I'm looking to buy and sell and, you know, something I want to own forever. And so you approach things differently, you know, if that's the mindset. One thing we saw for the previous owners of the team, which obviously, you know, Andrew was, you know, they were investments trying to get sort of a European presence more in MLS and, and trying to almost integrate that to, to be able to build off popularity of soccer in Europe. I, are you guys looking at anything along those lines to expand maybe even the pipeline of, of players and the brand of the fire to be able to expand to either Europe or bring Europe to the United States and to Chicago in any way? Yeah, a few things. You know, one, uh, developing our own talent is hugely important to the fire. So we've invested in the academy uh, and really want to be seen as a developer of talent uh, and to attract players here who want to be developed and, you know, maybe then go on to Europe um, or stay at the fire for their whole career. But we want to be, you know, a place where homegrowns can really uh, make the first team. And so I think you'll see, if you look back over the past couple of years, we've signed a record number of, you know, young kids to first team contracts. So we're pretty proud of that. There must be six, seven, eight of them that we've signed. Um, so one, we want to be seen as a developer of talent. You know, we've invested in the scouting network to help identify talent um, at a young age. You know, we're also beginning to look, and it's just very nascent, very early stage. You know, could we make an investment, you know, in some clubs outside of North America? Um, and integrate them with the fire as a way to develop talent. Not to, you know, buy a club abroad and leave it standalone, but to integrate that. So could we, you know, it gives you a lot of flexibility of developing talent that you could later move to Chicago or vice versa. Maybe you've got somebody on our roster, needs more minutes. You could send them to the club abroad 
And so, again, very early going, but, you know, starting to look abroad, a lot of people approach the fire with potential investments and European, you know, South American clubs. And, you know, could we, you know, buy a club and, um, you know, integrate that into the fire? Again, not leave it standalone, but integrate it so that we could move players up and down. And you've seen this model uh, in global football. You know, Man, Man City does this. Um, you know, and uh, a few other clubs own multiple clubs. And I think, you know, to their advantage, you know, that they've been able to use it to uh, improve upon their player development. So it's just starting to look at that. One thing I want to talk about is what you guys are trying to do in Belmont Craigan right now uh, and building a, a really sizable performance center and, you know, home base for the fire. Where did that come up? I think most people, when you look at it and say, okay, obviously the fire's been trying to, for years and years, trying to get more of a presence in the city in many ways. But Belmont Craigan, I mean, people probably look at it and say, how'd they end up there? Where did this come from? As I mentioned, you know, we want to be a premier developer of talent uh, uh, in MLS and globally. And so to do that, you need a world-class performance center, a place to develop talent. And right now we're in, in Bridgeview and, you know, it's okay, but it could be more. We'd like it to be more. Um, you know, we, we don't own that facility. Um, you know, it's not really large enough for our needs. And ideally, we'd like to be in the city proper in Chicago. And so, um, you know, we've been looking over the past year um, for parcels that would be big enough, you know, think 20, 25, 30 acres, uh, to build a world-class performance center. And as you know, there's not a ton of parcels like that laying around in Chicago. Uh, but we were able to identify one in, as you mentioned, in the belmont Cragen neighborhood uh you know a big soccer community there it's within chicago proper and it's got the footprint that we could use to develop a, i think a world-class performance center so that's how that came about you know we're in discussions now with cps um to hopefully secure that you know negotiating with the city is you know you've got to follow their protocols and procedures and I don't know, you look at Obama building his library, how long that took. <laughs> and he's an ex-president. Uh, and so, uh, you know, we're hopeful we'll come to a successful conclusion. And Mayor Lightfoot is supportive. The city is supportive. So, um, you know, we're working on that. But anyway, that's how we identified Belmont Cragen. You know, your real estate investments, and, and, and we've talked about your real estate investments downtown a bit with the Wrigley Building and obviously now the Waldorf Astoria and, and Belden Stratford. But investing in the neighborhoods, I mean, we see a lot of individuals with resources in Chicago that are involved in neighborhoods from a charitable giving side and in many ways, including yourself. We don't see a ton, I think, of people who are doing what you're doing. And when you look at investing in real estate in neighborhoods that haven't historically gotten a lot of financing, you know, easy to put together financing, at least, um, for big development projects like what you're doing with the fire, which obviously has the fire tie-in, but the terminal as well. What's driving that? Why are you investing in Chicago neighborhoods in ways that we just aren't seeing a lot of other people do? Well, first of all, I love Chicago. You know, it's a world-class city. Um, I think it's got a bright future, uh, despite some uh, challenges, too. Um, but, you know, in the long run, I think Chicago's got a bright future. And you're right, we've made some uh, investments in the downtown. Um, but also, I think the neighborhoods are very interesting. You know, Humboldt Park. Uh, is where the project you reference is located, the terminal. And I think Humboldt Park is an up-and-coming neighborhood. Um, it's an opportunity zone, which is a plus, you know, from an investment perspective. A lot of things just aligned. 
uh, you know, it was Chicago. It was the specific project um, with, you know, the bones of a, you know, structure that could be, again, preserved and made really just stunningly beautiful. Um, and then it aligns with what the mayor would like to see. I know she's has her uh, west and south initiative where she'd like to see more investment outside of the downtown to some of the neighborhoods. And so uh, the mayor's been very supportive and helpful. Um, so I think all those things aligned. And, um, you know, it's a long-term bet on Chicago and, you know, that the, these neighborhoods over time will get a lift up and hopefully this investment will be, you know, a catalyst for making that come on a, on a faster uh, timetable. There's concern about the future of downtown Chicago, you know, is any, any urban area, you know, because of COVID. Are you concerned about the future of our central business district and its vitality? Just, you know, looking at, I think that requires a longer term view, obviously, than what we see today. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the Magnificent Mile, downtown Chicago, it's a, you know, it's a magnet for, you know, foreign visitors and domestic visitors. And you want to, you know, that's our, one of our crown jewels. And so you want to make sure that stays vibrant, robust. There's too many vacancies on, on Michigan Avenue. And so we need to, and again, these are not unique to Chicago, but all the metro areas, you know, are seeing this, trying to figure out what's the future of retail. You know, it's taken a hit with the pandemic. Uh, I think you can see that strolling down Michigan Avenue. And again, we've got work to do. So yeah, I'm concerned, uh, but it's going to take, you know, I think some time to recover. And I think, you know, also just to kind of reinvent retail. Do you do you gravitate? I mean, we talked about, you know, your, your love for preserving the past in these kind of historic buildings, right? But do you gravitate toward any particular asset types right now? I mean, are you looking at when you look at your real estate opportunities that are in front of you, do you say, you know, I'm leaning more toward residential or more or away from office or, you know, industrial buildings? I mean, I, what, what do you look for right now in real estate? I think we're looking across the spectrum. I think the only thing I would eliminate is what we just touched on, retail. Uh, I'd be very hesitant to make a retail real estate investment. I think all those sectors, you know, are of interest. Um, multifamily housing. You know, hotels, we're looking at some other opportunities in that space. I also put on my investor hat. You know, I tend to be more of a value contrarian type. And if it's a hot area, I probably don't want to do it. There's no specific sectors other than um, avoiding um, retail real estate. Let me ask you about Morningstar. It's been four years since you switched, right, to executive chairman, roughly four years or so. How involved are you with with Morningstar, either on a day-to-day or a week-to-week basis, and you know, I wonder also whether you do you ever find yourself going, you wish you were still had more control over it than you do, or were back in your old role. Yeah, you know, I decided uh, when I was in my late fifties that when I turned sixty, I was going to step down as CEO of, of Morningstar, and so when I turned sixty, I handed over the reins to uh, Kunal Kapoor, who is the CEO today and who's doing a phenomenal job. And I wouldn't have stepped down if I didn't have a great successor, and Kunal is a great successor. But I'm very involved in Morningstar. I'm still executive chairman. So Kunal and I, I don't know, we email multiple times a week, if not daily. And, you know, we get together in person, you know, every week or two for lunch. So I'm pretty involved uh, with Morningstar. I would say at a strategic asset allocation level, but not at a operational level. You know, I'm not doing the day-to-day operations I love my life now. You know, I've gone from doing one thing, Morningstar, to a portfolio of things. Uh, Morningstar, the fire, real estate. I have a venture portfolio. 
some media investments with Ink and Fast Company. And then I've got some free time in between all those circles. Have you found along those lines any interesting new habits during the pandemic? I know everyone has, you know, changed some things, whether intentionally or unintentionally, about the way they their daily habits or what they do. Anything for you that stands out that over the past 16 months, looking back, that you've, you know, maybe interests that are new or habits that are new that have popped up in your world? You know, I've always worked out daily, but I started to work out even more. I had more time. And so kind of running further and just, you know, spending more time working out, doing more, I mentioned Pilates, kind of flexibility things as I get older. So kind of taking care of my health. And then one thing that surprised me uh, is I stopped drinking. (laughs) Now, that sounds like I'm an alcoholic or something, but, uh, you know, I never drank a lot. My wife and I split a bottle of wine on the weekends, but we went up to Michigan uh, when the pandemic broke. And, you know, the first night, my wife and I, we split a bottle of wine and had a nice meal. Second night, we split a bottle of wine, had a nice meal. Third night, split a bottle of wine. And I thought, I can't keep doing this. And I, I just stopped for what I thought was a few days. <laughs> and then I found I really felt better. And, you know, I slept better and, you know, I was alert in the evenings and the mornings better. And so I thought, no, I'll just kind of keep going. And so I found I've, it just really suited me well. And it's kind of surprised me. It was never a conscious thing of I'm giving up drinking, but... You know, it's been, I don't know, almost a year and a half now, and I've just felt better. And so, you know, the workouts are easier, and I don't know, I'll probably go back to having a drink or two, but, uh, you know, that one kind of surprised me. And then I just did more reading. You know, I, I kind of, um, you know, read uh, more of the classics. You know, I reread Thucydides, History of the Peloponnesian War, things I read in college that uh, I had forgotten about. Um, so just, you know, tried to read broadly and um, all kinds of things from business to classics. And so having more, having more time just to up my reading. I'd found I'd been doing, you know, just spending a lot of time, like most people on the internet, kind of reading articles and, you know, going to wonderful websites like Cranes. Um, and I wasn't reading as much as I used to. And so I think having more time, you know, I up my, my reading and, uh, and that was a nice thing. Um, so the, I don't know. I didn't really develop any wild exotic habits, uh, paragliding or something. But uh, you know, I'm pretty. I'm pretty basic, Danny. I'm not. Uh, <laughs> uh, no, no crazy habits. I was gonna say, are we gonna see you? You know, video of you sometime here. You know, sharing viewpoints on Greek military history with the fire. You know, in the locker room, motivational speeches. Are we gonna <laughs> see that? I talk. Uh, I talk uh, Greece with uh, Frank Klopas, our assistant coach who loves all things Greece uh, and loves Thucydides. And so, uh, but I think beyond that, the rest of the players, uh, I think it would not uh, be the point of connection. <laughs> What's next for you here in Chicago? Uh, anything that uh, you can give us a hint at that you are going to make a next big splash? Like you said, you guys, you have, you have an interesting mix of a portfolio now in different interests and business interests and personal interests. What do you see yourself getting into next? You know, I think in Chicago, um, you know, we've touched on them. You know, I think the Fire Performance Center is, you know, a, a huge priority. Uh, we're also renovating the, the Belden Stratford, you know, up in Lincoln Park. You know, on the real estate side, you know, beyond that, I think I've got a lot of Chicago. So we're doing some projects across the U.S. in Tampa, Atlanta, Austin, Madison. Um, so trying to kind of get our feet wet outside of Chicago a bit. Still love Chicago, open to opportunities here, but I think we've got a number of things. Uh, you know, want to finish the terminals we touched on in Humboldt Park, want to finish the Belton Stratford, want to get the 
fire training center, the performance center done. So that, that's a pretty full plate for us for now. I'm going to ask you one last question here that I've asked a number of people because I think it's an interesting, it's a crystal ball type of question. I wonder when we, if we fast forward five years, when we look back at 2020 and 2021 and what we thought the future would hold, what do you think we're going to be, most people are going to be most wrong about? When you look back at, at you know, predictions that have been made over the past year about the way people will change the way they live or work or, you know, what, what do you think things are, are that you think we, we most misinterpret about these times? That is a great question. I'm not sure I've got a crystal ball that will give you a clear answer on that. I, I guess there's some predictions that will, you know, we won't go back to shaking hands and hugs and, you know, we'll be keeping our distance. And, um, you know, I'm less sure that, you know, kind of work from home that, you know, that's the new norm, that people won't work in offices uh, as much. You know, I'm in the camp that um, we're going to revert more back to where we were that, you know, if you're running, a say, a company, you need to build a corporate culture. You need to get people together. Um, you know, we're humans. You know, we need that face-to-face interaction um, that we can't move wholly to video um, and distance and separation. We're going to get back to a world where there's more more contact um, and people in the office. That said, you know, there'll be flexibility around that, which I think is a positive. We're going to get back to, you know, travel, you know, being together shaking hands, um, putting the masks away, uh, and uh, being back in the office. And, you know, I, I look forward to those days. Joe, thank you so much for the time. No, it's been a great conversation, Danny. I appreciate the invitation uh, to be with you. That's Cranes reporter Danny Ecker with Morningstar Executive Chairman Joe Mansueto. You can read more about their conversation at chicagobusiness.com. Coming up, another big Amazon distribution center is coming to Waukegan. This is Crane's Daily Gist. Today's top stories are next. Here's a great way to stay in touch with Crane's Daily Gist. Subscribe to the Crane's Morning 10. It's our daily newsletter featuring the 10 biggest stories of the day. To subscribe, visit chicagobusiness.com morning 10. CPS officials announced that students, staff, and visitors will be required to wear masks inside of CPS buildings in the coming academic year, regardless of vaccination status. The district said that ensuring access to full-time in-person learning this fall is its highest priority in line with state, local, and national health guidance. The updated set of safety guidelines comes as parents expressed concern about district uncertainty leading into the school year and just days after city officials expressed concern about a surge in the highly contagious Delta variant. The state school board has said that masks can be optional for vaccinated students and teachers, but that local administrators can set tighter rules. The district won't guarantee three feet of social distancing at all times due to school population and classroom constraints, but said it would enforce three feet of social distancing whenever possible. While eating meals, students will be divided between cafeterias and other spaces like classrooms to facilitate three feet of distance. Where distance isn't possible, the schools will rely on safety measures like air purifiers, hand sanitizer, cleaning and disinfecting, contact tracing, as well as cloth face coverings. The district said on Thursday it will also update health protocols when necessary according to public health guidance. Amazon has snapped up more industrial space in the northern suburbs, leasing a big warehouse in Waukegan that could employ hundreds of people. 
The company confirmed it's moving into a new and more than 500,000 square foot building on South Lakeside Drive in the Bridgepoint North Industrial Park. Amazon already occupies one building in the same development, a nearly 630,000 square foot fulfillment center just around the corner on Bridge Drive that opened in 2017. The Waukegan lease is just the latest in a real estate binge in the Chicago area that Amazon started a few years ago and sped up earlier in the pandemic in 2020. Crane's Albie Galoon reported that the expansion has slowed a bit this year but shows few signs of winding down. And the company has been on a hiring spree as well, adding 15,000 workers in Illinois last year with plans to hire another 3,800 in 2021. Amazon also recently agreed to lease a nearly 630,000 square foot warehouse in Huntley, expected to employ more than 1,000 full-time workers after it opens next year. The company also bought sites in the Chicago neighborhoods of Gage Park and Humboldt Park, where it plans even more warehouses. Amazon didn't say how many people would work at the new Waukegan building, which will be a so-called sortation center, an in-between stop for packages ordered through the website. Amazon is leasing the building from Bridge Industrial, a Chicago-based developer of Bridgepoint North, a three-phase project covering 225 acres. The first residents of a brand new 189-unit apartment tower, steps from Millennium Park, have barely moved in, and the building's developer is already putting it up for sale. Mosseri and Rozak, the developers behind Parkline Chicago, have hired CBRE to sell the rental units in the 26-story building at 60 East Randolph that just opened its leasing office in February. The property is almost completely leased, which is another sign that the downtown multifamily market is bouncing back from a severe pandemic-induced slump last year. The tower also includes 24 condos on floors 20 through 26 that aren't part of the sale. Only a few big high-end downtown multifamily properties have changed hands in the past couple of years, but prices of those sold have ranged from about $380,000 to $480,000 per unit, according to research firm Real Capital Analytics. The downtown apartment investment market has begun to perk up as occupancies and rents have rebounded and investors have grown more confident about the future. A San Francisco investor investment firm recently acquired McClurg Court Center in Streeterville, the second biggest apartment complex in downtown Chicago with 1,061 units. The Bernadette in River North, the Shoreham and Tides in Lakeshore East, and 1407 on Michigan in the South Loop have all hit the market in recent months as well. Rivian Automotive, the electric pickup maker backed by Amazon, is looking for a location for a second assembly plant in the U.S. before it's produced its first vehicle. The California-based startup earlier pushed back plans to start output at its first factory, a former Mitsubishi Motors plant in downstate Normal, citing supply chain bottlenecks for key components. Rivian's second U.S. plant will include battery cell production, and Reuters reported on Thursday that multiple states have bid for the project. A global shortage of Computer chips hasn't spared startups, a situation that prompted Rivian to shift the start of production of its R1T truck by two months to September. It also moved back the timeline for its second planned model, an electric SUV known as the R1S, from August until an unspecified time in the fall. Rivian also has a deal in place to build 100,000 electric delivery vans for Amazon.
And that's Crane's Daily Gist for now. Our continuous news feed lives at chicagobusiness.com. Thanks so much to Joe Mansueto and to Danny Ecker. Be sure to subscribe to these conversations on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you get your audio on demand. And find hashtag Crane's Daily Gist on Twitter, Facebook, and LinkedIn. And let's continue talking there about these and other business stories. Our show is produced by Todd Manley at Earsight Studios. I'm Amy Guth. Thanks so much for listening, and I'll meet you right back here next time.